Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. Ostensibly, this show is about macroeconomics and monetary policy, but I would be remiss if I didn't inform each and one of you that tomorrow, May 26, 2021, we will all be witnessing a super flower blood moon. That means the moon will be at its closest point to the Earth in the year. There will be a full moon during the month of May and a total lunar eclipse. Now, if these signs weren't enough, in a couple of weeks, America's Department of Defense will be testifying in front of Congress about unidentified aerial phenomena. Phenomena. Okay. Now, I've watched enough X-Files and Twilight Zone episodes to realize what this all means, and that this video that you're watching will likely be one of the last YouTube videos ever recorded, by humans at least. Good news, Jeff Snyder and I are going to deliver a show that is worthy of the apocalypse because the Federal Reserve recently admitted something incredible, world-changing, that matches the moment. Now, before we discuss that, Friends, how would you like to spend your last few hours, weeks, months in civilization and on this earth other than on social media? So, if you believe the world will end in fire, you can contact Jeff on Twitter at Jeff, Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. If you believe it will end in ice, at Emil Kalinowski. And if you think all these things are just regular astrological phenomena and advanced human technology, then you can contact us at Bank Reserves Are Real Money and The Economy Is Fine and Vanilla Ice Cream Tastes Delicious.com. Jeff, the apocalypse again. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to live up to the billing here. I oh, mean, no, yeah, we are. I, I, we were, yeah, I don't know. I think you've built us up too much here. Although in the in the monetary realm, of course, our, our audience is certainly open to more of the esoteric subjects that we get into. And so maybe for them, this will be earth shattering. I think maybe for most of the people, any casual observers might be underwhelmed. But, you know, our hardcore audience, people have been around for a long time. They, they'll, they, they will see the significance and the in the absolute you know amazement of what the what the federal open market committee has actually admitted in writing in public may 19th the federal reserve released the meeting minutes of the federal open market committee meeting on april 27th and 28th what is everyone talking about jeff taper where it's like it's May 2013 all over again. The Federal, the Federal Reserve, uh, their open market committee meeting minutes mentioned if conditions warrant, the Federal Reserve might, you know, change their policy or something or other. It was a very weak statement, and it's, kind of, it's the kind of statement that the FOMC releases in pretty much any release ever. It's sort of their, you know, a green, uh, what do you call it, the, um, sort of their warranty statement where they say, safe harbor look if things change we're going to change with it and of course everybody ran with it with given the inflation hysteria of the last couple of weeks oh my god the fed sees the inflation too therefore they're going to start tapering qe and that's the big deal and that that was really the the thing that we need to pay attention to in the fomc minutes is here we are it's 2013 all over again taper tantrum time 
So they added this statement this time around. Is that what the big difference is? Like the statement itself, as you said, it's very mealy mouth. It, let me hear. Let me read it here. A number of participants suggested that if the economy, if the economy continued to make rapid progress toward the committee's goals, it might be appropriate at some point in an upcoming meeting to begin discussing a plan for adjusting the pace of asset purchases. So that's like four maybes. Yeah, exactly. I think they're trying to make a point with them, right? But what, how did the media react? I mean, is this new? This is what, I mean, it sounds like I think the media it was went. Just, it was confirmation bias. I think by and large, people were expecting huge CPI numbers, huge PPI numbers, as we just talked about before the previous segment. And then, therefore, it was like, oh, my God, okay, the next part of that is the Fed needs to taper. And here's a, here's a bunch of words that sound like taper. And so it was really, I think that's really what it was, is like, okay, here's a statement. This Fed says if, if uh, maybe, maybe, possibly, then we'll start, uh, we'll begin to think about adjusting <laughs> monetary policy. And everybody, oh, that's taper. They're starting to think about taper when, uh, you know, it's just the Fed th basically including a throwaway statement. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I wasn't joking about the end of the world earlier. In this article, we're going to get to something really revolutionary, really a big change. It's just not what everyone thinks it is. And you can read along, by the way. It's at Alhambra Investments. It was posted on May 19th, and it's called Inflation Huge. Jay Powell did blink, but it had nothing to do with taper. All right, we said taper a few times, 2013. Just remind us, Jeff, right? What was the situation? Ben Bernanke was in charge, and he had initiated QE34, and it was gonna go, it was indefinite this time, right? It was gonna go on forever. And then in a few months, it was over. Like it was, well, you tell the story. Yeah, in the middle of 2013, QE3 and QE4 were not that old. And as you were, you're right, the, the initial promise was that they would be open-ended. That was supposed to be the thing that distinguished them from the prior QE1 and QE2 because those were limited to a specific amount. And so here Ben Bernanke was saying, we're going to do a monthly rate as long as we need to do it. And then in the middle of 2013, all of a sudden he said, well, things look like they're, you know, conditions look like they're improving. Maybe we're going to start to consider cutting back on per. He didn't actually use the word taper, use some other word. I can't remember off the top of my head. But he didn't say taper, but that's the word that, that became commonplace in the, in the mainstream. And really, it was, you know, at that point, it wasn't that the, uh, the Fed was going to stop buying bonds so much as, oh, these guys are confident enough that they're thinking about cutting back on purchases. How good must the economy actually be? Because usually the Fed's pretty cautious about these kinds of things. And if Ben Bernanke is sitting in front of Congress telling them he's going to think about cutting back on QE purchases that were supposed to be open-ended, Things must be really good. And it's funny how the bond market reacted in that way, which is basically the opposite of the, the mainstream or the conventional view, viewpoint of, of, of uh, um, long-term bond yields. You know, rising yields were a good thing. They were suggesting that the market was finally saying, okay, maybe this stuff is working. The unemployment rate in the United States is falling relatively rapidly. Therefore, hey, maybe this is the trick. Maybe three or four times was enough. And for a couple months there, that's what that's what happened. Of course, it was wrongly called the taper tantrum when it should have been called something like, hey, recovery is finally maybe possible. And of course, it only lasted a couple months because it really wasn't possible. Ben Bernanke was himself engaged in confirmation bias as 
The Fed actually did taper QE3 and QE4 starting in December of 2013 and then terminated them completely in December of 2014 as yields were coming back down. Again, the opposite of what's supposed to happen. So you can see how people are excited this time because you can hear a lot of the same echoes like the economy is doing very well and or appears to be inflation retail sales doing really well so you can see how hey last year we thought it was the end of the world it was open-ended it was a pandemic it was the bubonic plague and now they added something that says well you know maybe maybe it won't be the end of the world even though now we know yeah and don't we, forget you know jay powell and the fed this time around have been more amongst the you know they're in the cautious camp right they're the ones saying this is transitory inflation so if you think that in the FOMC meeting from April, they say, we need to think about taper, it sounds like they've changed their opinion, which of course would would have seemed to be more solid evidence for the inflation case. But again, <laughs> if they were actually doing that, there wouldn't be six qualifiers in that statement that would say, oh, maybe down the road, eventually we'll begin to think about tapering. Well, Jeff, as you always tell me, we have to be precise. There was only four qualifiers. Oh, so so I'm sorry, four. You're exaggerating. I inflated we don't want to be... the number of qualifications. <laughs> All right, folks, let's get to what really got Jeff excited. Jeff, there was another part to the statement, and you say here, was where Jay Powell and crew really blinked. Tell us about it. Well, bank reserves, right? I mean, bank reserves for, you know, what we, you and I do, Emil, bank reserves are always the, almost always the number one topic, right? Because we say they're not money. And I love the way you <laughs> call them laundromat tokens, because I think that really speaks very well to what they are. They have, they are money in a sense. They have a very limited, narrow use, but outside of that use, they're, they're just kind of an accounting fiction. They're just a number on a piece of paper somewhere or, you know, number on a computer, Um but yet people think about them in the historical setting, of course, that uh, hasn't changed since the 1950s, where bank reserves are a form of useful money. I don't, you know, that never really was the case, but in the popular imagination, it seems like the Federal Reserve creates these things, lets the banking system use them. So how can it not be money? Bank reserves are money. And ever since the 2008 crisis, with all the various emergency non-standard programs like TAF auctions and overseas dollar swaps, who's at the end of those programs are more bank reserves. The word liquidity has gotten thrown around in with bank reserves too. So not only is bank reserves money, it's money printing, it's liquidity, it's all of these great things that you associate with monetary policy, accommodative monetary policy and central banks doing what they're supposed to be. And we've been saying all along, no, no, no. At the very least, there's more to the story than bank reserves, liquidity, money supply, all these other things. There are other things that are going on in the monetary system that you need to pay attention to. And if we actually take an honest look at the monetary situation globally, bank reserves, assuming we want to assign any monetary value to them at all, are way, 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 way down the list. All this other stuff, especially collateral, repo, and all these other things that we talk about all the time, those are the things you need to pay attention to. We don't care much about bank reserves. It's other things that, that really fill out the monetary picture. And so there's always been that disconnect because we're, we're, we're told to believe bank reserves are money when in reality and practice, this mountain of evidence says, no, there's much, much more going on than, the, than bank reserves. And you list in your paper here some of the evidence. You 
because at one point there were so many reserves that the powers that be decided to start calling it abundant reserves. They could have said insanity reserves, bananas reserves, some some qualifier to describe egregious. how outrageous, <laughs> egregious super reserve. blood moon reserves. And but but as you yeah, point no, out, no, that's 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 the point, right? Abundant reserves has a purpose. Calling them abundant reserves, what does that do? It sends the signal out to the general public who doesn't pay attention to these things, quite understandably. I mean, most people don't, I mean, they're not going to take time out of their day to try to figure out what's going on in the monetary plumbing globally because it's, you know, why would they? And so if the Federal Reserve says these are abundant reserves, you're supposed to take that and think, okay, the money supply is plentiful. The Fed says everything's abundant. I don't need to worry about these things because everything's abundant. The last thing on my mind, because I believe the Fed, is any sort of deflationary liquidity problem. That's just not gonna worry about it because reserves are abundant. And that's that's the whole purpose in calling them abundant to begin with is to say, don't even look over here. Don't worry about money. We've got it completely covered. Liquidity is more than plentiful. It's abundant. Was it abundant enough during the worst of the 2008 crisis? Was it abundant enough to stop the 2011 European sovereign debt crisis or during March, 2020. And Jeff, could I include, because we skipped over one of the Eurodollar episodes there, the East Asian one, could we kind of include foreign exchange reserves as part of the broad reserve family being not enough or the incomplete story? Or I think you should. Yeah, absolutely. Far? No, no, I think it's, that's, a, that's a separate story, but it is, I think you're absolutely right. Reserves of all these different kinds are supposed to be you know, in the foreign reserve aspect, it's supposed to be an insurance for um, a, a global dollar shortage when we find out that it's not. In the same way, bank reserves are supposed to be sort of an insurance policy for banking system to use in case liquidity across all of these marketplaces or all of the activities that banks engage in starts to go awry. And we see time and time again, 2008, in the worst, worst of the crisis, the Fed said uh, reserves are abundant. But yet there was a crisis. I mean, if reserves are abundant and you have a, a, the worst panic in four generations anyway, then that should already tell you that bank reserves are not what everybody thinks they are. And the fact that these things have repeated over and over again is just reestablishing that fact. And it is a fact that bank reserves are not the complete story of money. And, to, and again, to our opinion, they're not even that the most interesting part of it. They're a very small part of it, very limited and narrow use. We need to look elsewhere. So the fact that the Fed is saying these are abundant reserves and we keep having liquidity problems, we cannot equate abundant reserves with liquidity. There's other things that need to go in that, that space. Well, you call them liquidity problems, but here we're making the point, you're making the point, these were four liquidity shocks in the middle of abundant reserves. Two of them were global liquidity shocks and two of them were regional in Europe the largest economic region and China, the second largest economy. It, it just, it doesn't compute. And guess who has figured that out? Maybe, maybe they've figured it out. Do you want me to read it out or do you want to? No, go wanna... ahead. Let's, let's, let's get to it. Let's, here's okay. what the Fed said. Yeah, go ahead and read it. This was in the, in the meeting minutes. 
nearly all participants commented that a standing repo facility by acting as a backstop could help address pressures in the markets for U.S. Treasury securities and Treasury repo that could spill over to other funding markets and impair the implementation and transmission of monetary policy. Here we go. In this regard, a number of participants noted the potential for pressures in short-term funding markets to arise from time to time, even with monetary policy operating in an ample reserves regime. Yeah, from time to time. I love how they throw yeah. that in For <laughs> Titanic asteroid collisions with the Earth in the monetary order four times in 14 years. I know it's, we've created these trillions of reserves to solve the world's money problem. And well, from time to time, we might have problems. I mean, it's just it's problem. ridiculous, right? It's like, well, bank reserves are money, bank reserves are everything. And oh, by the way, from time to time, we have these treasury market and treasury repo issues that may spill over into big problems that we have to completely alter the way we do things in monetary, pro I mean, the statement itself is, of course, comes across relatively innocuous until you realize exactly what they're saying here, which is basically everything that we've told you, there's more going on. And we don't really want to get into it here, except to put in writing that, hey, treasury market, treasury repo, there's there's other things in, involved in the monetary system that time, from time to time may cause problems regardless of the level of bank reserves even with monetary policy operating in an ample reserves regime. You put that in so, bold, yeah, what are the, all what caps. are reserves ample for, right? Nothing, I guess. Well, I, I mean, mean, I don't know the, what they're What's they're the point? Why call it? Yeah, reserves are ample and abundant, but that doesn't make them useful. And I think that's really our point of contention here. And the Fed is finally getting into the meat of that, which is, you know, bank reserves are an accounting fiction. They're at the end of an asset swap. They're at the end of a federal. They're under at the end of a monetary program. But that doesn't necessarily mean what everybody's been told it means. In a lot of cases, the Fed just lets lets imaginations run wild. That's this quote unquote money printing stuff that goes along with every quantitative easing. And here they are, basically saying, "Well, there's, you know, it's more complicated than all of that." Like, yeah, no, that's exactly the case. It is more complicated. You end it here very well simply. Reserves have indeed been abundant, but what they have not been is money. Jeff, my final question to you is, you say here that Powell blinked, and it does mean inflation too, just not in the way it's being described about. What, what do you mean? Well, the, the, again, we started out talking about everybody thought Powell blinked when he said, oh, we're going to taper. And everybody, okay, he's changing position from now transitory inflation to, oh, we better get ready for inflation. So we're going to start talking about taper. That's what everybody thinks. Everybody, uh, the mainstream perception was Powell blinked about inflation. When we just, as we just talked about, what he really said was, oh, bank reserves are not money. And the way that relates to inflation, of course, is if the Fed isn't printing money, then there isn't the printing money aspect to what's going on in the CPI and consumer prices in a broad fashion, not just in the United States, but everywhere quantitative easing has been tried, as we know from 20 years of quantitative easing in Japan as well. So where the Fed actually blinked when it comes to inflation is they finally put in writing in their minutes that, oh, by the way, from time to time, doesn't matter about bank reserves. And from that, everything follows. 
And yeah, I mean, it's a baby step for the Fed to make that statement. And there's other things going on. We talked about the paper, the repo paper, collateral, the Fed making, you know, taking collateral out of the system, all these other. I mean, they're starting to get into these complicated areas where we've been for a very long time saying, ignore bank reserves. Those are only a canard. They're going to re- lead you down the, lo- the wrong path. And for them to actually make that statement at, at, for the minutes for April, for April 2021 of all of all months, it's a profound, a profound admission of, hey, there's there's a lot more going on in the monetary system. Jeff, it's very unlikely that you and I will be able to do a show tomorrow on account of the end of the world. I plan to spend the rest of my day reading my favorite poem, which is Darkness by Lord Byron. It is about the end of the world. But if, uh, you know, I guess there's a small chance that everything will be fine. If it is, we'll do another show again tomorrow. I'll talk to you then. Well, you need to watch Independence Day because that's the end of the world that didn't turn out to be the end of the world. So there's always hope. And so in a, in a world now where the, where the Federal Reserve and the FOMC has put in writing that bank reserves are not the complete picture of the monetary system, there is hope. There is a future for, for humanity here. You got you to gotta give that speech that the president gave on July 4th. I remember that movie, 1996. <laughs> that was, you mean the uh, fake president? Was it? No, I mean, yeah, in the movie, I guess. was he fake? Yeah. Not in the real movie, right? Not in the no, movie. He, he was some fictional uh, uh, fighter pilot kind of guy. And oh yeah. yeah, we need more presidents like that. Uh oh, that's going to come off as uh, I'm saying bad things about President Biden because he's not a fighter pilot. I better cut it off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, Emil. Take care. But first, this. From Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you worried your monetary policies are causing lurid levels of inequality? Are you concerned civil war, its hour come round at last, slouches toward K Street? Do you worry how your supple neck will fare when the blood dimmed tide is loose? Then the new Eurodollar Enterprises second skin neck brace is for you. Yes, strut through the wasteland knowing that marauding lynch mobs of war boys pose no danger. The carbon fiber nanoweave is comfortable, flexible, and the ultimate luxury in an April dystopia you hasn't. Barter Aquacola for Guzzoline at Thunderdome with no concern of the guillotine. Is that the road warrior with a chainsaw? Then save your skin with your second skin neck brace. New from Eurodollar Enterprises. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University episode production. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by, with, <laughs> Jeff Snyder, head of global research of Alhambra Partners. Did I get that part right, Jeff? I'm stumbling. I'm only two seconds into the show. Well, I think the problem is you're recovering from yesterday where we thought, hey, this is the end of the world and we're surprised to actually be here today. So. It, 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 the, the audience is going to have to bear with us as we get over the shock of, of actually being here an extra day, at least an extra day, maybe further. Well, today is the anniversary of the publication of Dracula in 1897. I figure I'm going to be able to link that somehow to the full moon and some of the bats that I've been seeing around out here. All right, why, people are turning off quickly. We're going to tell them We're going to be talking about the Treasury International Capital Report, which is one of Jeff's favorites or most in-depth that's available to see what might be happening in the global Eurodollar system. And we're going to be talking about 
foreigners, foreigners selling treasuries. That's how, where we're going to start off. And it's, you hear about it often on Twitter and on various podcasts that foreigners are selling on purpose. And I was just scrolling through Twitter and then I came across this tweet by Robin Brooks, who is the chief economist at the International Institute of Finance, uh, former chief foreign exchange strategist at Goldman Sachs. He's talking about the same tick report data that you we're going to go over with Jeff right now. Quote, foreigners stopped buying treasury securities and aren't coming back. That's true for treasury bills and bonds and notes and holds for flow of funds data plus tick data that go to Q1 2021. There won't be foreign flows. There won't be a foreign flows conundrum like in 2004, 2006 this time. Jeff, you start out talking about foreign flows. What's What's the mainstream narrative? Well, the idea is, I think, as the economist was stating, the global savings glut, right? The idea that um, foreigners, for whatever reasons, Ben Bernanke said it was a baby boomer savings for retirement. In the pre-crisis era, they had preferred buying a whole lot of U.S. Treasury securities, not just U.S. Treasuries, but also agency debt and even MB some forms of MBS mortgage bond securities as well. And then suddenly, for whatever reason, they stopped buying, or they stopped buying as many. And in certain point, in certain times, they've actually sold them, and it has created a whole lot of confusion as to why are foreigners suddenly selling? Because before 2008, it seemed like they couldn't get enough. They wanted to save all of their money in safe American assets. And following 2008, it seems like they don't seem to really like these things anymore, particularly after 2013. So something about to, after 2008 and then after 2013, foreigners no longer really like US treasuries. And the, the question is why? What is going on here? Well, what people would say is because the United States government is so spendthrift because the people in charge have lost the confidence of the global community. And therefore, why should we subsidize this country that's out of control? And that's yeah, why and that's, they're selling. That's what, so that's what, right. except that's the emotional this, argument, right? That's that these, these, these damn bastards in Washington need to be punished. And I think that's that's what clouds a lot of analysis is that, that people are waiting for some market activity that forces sanity on these people. And so they want in some ways they want the Treasury market to blow up. They want foreigners to say, screw you guys. We're not buying your paper anymore. But yet that's not what really happens. That's what people want to happen because they want the government to be shunned and, and denied access to credit markets so that the government has to finally is in some way boxed in so that it begins to act responsibly. But as we see in the chart that you're showing here, Emil, it's the exact opposite. When foreigners stop buying treasuries and actually sell them outright, as they have, especially again, since I said 2013, what happens to the prices of treasuries? Under that narrative, you would expect the opposite to happen. You would expect that treasury prices would go down and therefore interest rates would go way up because we need foreigners. That's what we've been told for so many years. That's what The Economist was talking about in 2004 and 2005. Without foreigners, the treasury market is toast. It's, it's dead, it's death. You, you would be crazy to own any kind of US government debt. But what we see time and time again is the it's the opposite case. Whenever foreigners begin to buy less and then actually sell, the prices of US treasuries go up, not down. So there's, they're inversely correlated to the way it's supposed to work, which tells us something very important about 
why foreigners must be selling treasuries in the first place. You summarize it very well here in your article. When dollars are less hard to come by, reflation, foreigners tend to buy these assets back even as the rest of the marketplace seems to be selling them as growth and inflation expectations rebound. And the article that we're reading from, ladies and gentlemen, you can read it too. It's TIC, spelled T-I-C, reflation rolling, rolling over. I'm having trouble with my words. You know why? Because I didn't have my customary traditional shot of rum before each show, and I'm missing it. Okay, it was posted on the 18th of May at Alhambra Investments. And right at the beginning, you say, we're going to be answering two questions. The first one is, does reflation still have legs? And the second, or are we seeing signs of a premature demise, maybe even rolling over already toward what would then be the next global dollar sh shortage Surge. It's just going to be happening throughout the show. I cannot say words this morning. I don't know why. So the first part of the show, we're going to be talking about things that you saw in the tick report that do suggest reflation. And what we just talked about, foreigners are not selling as much, right? I'm going to, I want to say buying, but they haven't yeah. quite reached <laughs> the Everything line. Everything is relative, right? Yeah. It's not so they're Outright, tell us, tell us. Yeah, it's rate of change. It's always rate of change. If foreigners have been selling a lot and then they start selling less treasuries, that can be reflationary. In the same way that foreigners who used to buy a ton all of a sudden buy a lot less, that can be dollar shortage. And really what we're talking about here, when foreigners buy and sell, has to do with are the, is the euro dollar system throwing off enough monetary resources that allow countries around the world, especially in official channels, to – to, to, to rebound those dollars back into the U.S. in the form of buying U.S. US dollar assets, primarily U.S. Treasury notes, bonds, those types of things, and bills as well. And if the euro dollar system is experiencing disruption, there's fewer dollars flowing throughout the rest of the world, what happens a lot of times is we see foreigners have to sell these assets to liquidate them in order to gain liquid currency deposits and things like that to, to, uh, to offset the dollar shortage in the marketplace. And that's why it's inversely related because when there's a dollar shortage in foreigners sell treasuries, that dollar shortage type money is something that, that, uh, that encourages global demand in these same instruments, which is why their prices go up, not down when foreigners are selling. So it's, it's, it's entirely 180 degrees the opposite the way of everybody says. And so what we wanna see in, of the tick data if we're thinking about reflation is, as you pointed out, Emil, foreigners are either buying or maybe they're selling less than they had. And that's really what we saw in the first quarter of 20, uh, 2021, which is no surprise because everything about, especially January and February, was intensely reflationary. It says here that in March, the net increase of all types of recorded U.S. dollar assets among all the various foreign holders surged by a monthly record of $208 billion. Reflation, excellent. Yes. N next one, a little bit riskier specific area that we're gonna look at is corporate bonds. And that also found favor. I'm gonna pull up the graph. So another reflationary yeah, good news bonds, sign. Yeah, corporate bonds had been uh, one signal going all the way back to the late 2018, what we call the landmine, which said, hey, there's something wrong here. 
So foreigners had been binging on corporate bonds ever since 2015. All of a sudden, in late 2018, they started to say, look, we don't want these things. And they began to sell them in a, at, in a, at, a, at a rate which had been unprecedented in the tick series, especially when we get into 2020, which is the, obviously the COVID recession, everything last year. And then, of course, going back to October of last year, they started selling fewer corporate bonds and then outright buying them during the first quarter, which is a definite reflationary signal consistent with what we saw in, uh, in bond markets around the world. Another reflationary signal is the first quarterly increase in reported measured bank liabilities. According to what banks told the Treasury about their operations in Q1, total estimated U.S. dollar foreign liabilities rose by $126 billion, meaning it's U.S. banks now feeling confident, whereas before we were just talking about foreigners? Yes. And so U.S. banks were extending more U.S. dollar liabilities to overseas counterparties. And that, that rate was actually a pretty substantial rate. Okay. But what you notice, though, in that, in that that's a quarterly total, all of the, the, the bulk of that increase came in January and February. In March, it was actually a decline. And we don't want to make too much about the monthly pattern, but that's, that's, that's something that's consistent we've seen time and time again, of course, Emilio, you and I talk about all the time, February 24th and 25th as a inflection point that here we are three months later is still visible across all of these charts. So purely reflation in treasuries and global bonds around the world, um, maybe just January and February in this, this corp, the uh, uh, bank liability data says, yes, January and February, heavy reflation, March, not so much. Jeff, you're, I'm proud of you. You've segued from the unabashedly good new reflationary data to the kind of good news. And now we're heading into the, this is definitely not supportive of reflation. And what, well, it we're wouldn't gonna, be our style just to be <laughs> unbridled optimism. Right? Well, That's not our thing. Our thing is to be, you know, objective reality. And of course, objective reality most of the time is, well, there's a few good signs, but more often than not, there's, they're going to be quickly overwhelmed. And one of the signs is the U.S. dollar, the broadly weighted U.S. dollar. Tell us a little bit about 2017 in Q1 and how the U.S. dollar reacted to what just happened in 2021 in Q1, which was similar in the tick report data, but the U.S. dollar is acting anti-reflationary. I'm pulling up the chart. Yeah, in 2017, the U.S. dollar began to drop, which, I mean, that was consistent with uh, reflation, what we call reflation number three. And at the very beginning of it, you see circled on the chart here, uh, a big rebound in bank liabilities. Again, U.S. banks being more confident about offshore reflation, globally synchronized growth, whatever they called it back then. Therefore, that was consistent with a falling dollar, but not necessarily a crashing dollar or a diving dollar or any of, the, any of the other things that were tossed around back at the time because very quickly you can see that that reflation and in, in bank liabilities didn't last very long there was a modest increase and in, a much more modest increase in q2 and then in q3 before getting into q4 2017 and q1 2018 which sort of spelled the end of reflation because it never got to be anything more than reflation this time around however we got the big rebound in liabilities that was consistent with we saw in bond markets, but yet curiously, the dollar's exchange value has been uh, relatively stubborn. 
Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's strong, but it didn't fall any further than it had during 2020. And it's been maintained in most currency crosses outside of a few, a few of them. Even the euro, for example, it's been sort of sideways ever since January. So we're not even seeing, you know, yes, it's reflationary in, in this bank data, which is not, I mean, it doesn't directly translate into currency terms, but uh, currency exchange value translations, but you would expect there'd be some more consistency there. One of the nice things about the tick data is that it can it provides you data by country and then you can group those countries and what you see is global money centers, the United States, Europe, the Caribbean, and for Asia, it's Japan. And we can take a look at Japanese bank liabilities. Is that right? They're borrowing from the United States presumably to invest but what do we see we see that they're not as enthusiastic in the march data yes this is u.s banks claims on japanese banks and so that a claim is a a loan of some sort or some kind of liability that's been extended in favor of japan and japan has been as you pointed as you just said emil it's a a absolutely crucial primary post-crisis especially Asian U.S. dollar redistribution node in the entire euro dollar system network. Now, why that is, I think it relates to China in the early crisis period, as, I'm show, as you're showing on the chart here. I think Japanese banks thought, well, you know, the, the United States and Europe are screwed uh, in 2010, what you know, Mohamed Arian called the new normal. But China's going to be impervious to all this stuff. So China's a great place to be. We're mm-hmm. we're not going to invest much in the United States. We're gonna we're gonna use all of our yen as to swap into U.S. dollars so that we can go and, and lend those dollars into China. And that started to be you know that seemed to be a very good proposition up until around 2012 2013 when China began to show signs of both slowing down as the the lack of recovery in the developed world started to catch up to them as well as official recognition that that was taking place that's event if you think back to 2013 that's when the chinese first started talking about rebalancing for example and rebalancing in the internal economy is simply simply said we're not going to count on our export economy for very much longer because it doesn't seem to be coming back in the way that we wanted to wanted it to in the post-crisis era so somewhere around 2013, Japanese banks, they heard what Chinese officials were saying. They saw the slowdown across Asian emerging markets. And they said, OK, maybe we don't want to be as dollar risk, dollar, dollar, uh, dollar attached to these places as we had been. And so that accounted for, I think, a good deal of what became euro dollar number three's big trouble as far as Asia and emerging markets went. They, had, they lost a lot of their dollar funding impetus through, to, through Tokyo. And take a look at that, that surge. Did we ever discuss this? Maybe it's too deep into the data right now, but in, you know, during the worst of the COVID, they went, went back into borrowing from the United States. Yeah, and I think that was related again to China. The idea was that China was gonna come out of this in far, far better. And there, I mean, there was also the idea that the Chinese experience with COVID had been far, you know, night and day different from everywhere else around the world, because all we heard about in the early days, whether it's true or not, I mean, who knows, but the Chinese COVID uh, pandemic was mild compared to everywhere else. I mean, I don't believe that, but (laughs) that was certainly the idea. I think that was, that was an early, uh, uh, that was an early story that had propagated in a lot of different ways. Of course, the, the Chinese Communist Party behind much of it. And I wonder how much that might have influenced Japanese bank behavior. 
as well as the ideas, okay, if China isn't getting it bad with COVID, their economy may not be hurt as bad. And even if it is hurt as bad, maybe China is going to benefit from, you know, the rest of the world being depressed and uh, China not being so depressed. And then that's, that seemed to make a lot of sense of why Jap Japan would be coming back into this dollar redistribution business, which I think is closely linked to China during 2020s, even the early parts of 2020. But as you pointed out, it's come off the boil a little bit recently. So it's not as enthusiastic. So not in reflation's favor. And now I'm going to read a sentence, ladies and gentlemen, that shook me to my core. Quote, underlying this Japanese anti-reflationary withdrawal, the same is taking place across the Caribbean. And then in parentheses, we'll have to ask Emil Kalinowski to stick his head out of his window and confirm. Jeff, true or false, that sentence originally read, lift his head off his hammock before I complain to you that it would look, make me look like a bum. I'm going to pull up the, uh, the Caribbean chart now. Yeah, it's interesting that um, you know, the Caribbean had been a sort of rebounding in the euro dollar activities all the way back to 2017 and 2018, which we've talked about before, I believe, on the podcast where we're trying to figure out, mm -hmm. you know, there's some statistical data quirks involved here that make it very difficult and some discontinuities in the data that maybe that's not what was really going on. But what we do know is that it, from March 2020 forward, all of a sudden, whatever was going on with Caribbean banks before 2020, after March 2020, it's of course was GFC2 and the major crisis in the recession, Caribbean banks have said, well, maybe we don't want to do this dollar stuff anymore either. And if you've got Japanese banks rethinking things and actually cutting back in their dollar redistribution, and you've got Caribbean banks doing some of the same thing, especially going back to December, where that seemed to have accelerated in both the Caribbean and Japan, it really starts, okay, maybe that's why the dollar's exchange value has been so stubborn, despite reflation and evident in all these other places, is that underlying all of that, there are these signals and signs that say, something else is going on. Maybe this thing has run its course and it's already starting to erode. And ironically, or not really ironically, but very straightforwardly, it's the same way it happened in 2018, switching from inflation three to, to Euro dollar number three, or Euro dollar number four, excuse me. The same thing had happened. The Japanese had heard from the Chinese and their Chinese contacts that look, this globally synchronized growth stuff, we're not buying it. We're getting out of this. You know, Xi Jinping, the 19th Party Congress at the end of 20th, at the end of uh, 2017, in October of that year, where they said quality growth rather than quantity growth. And all of a sudden, right at the end of 20, uh, 2017 and into 2018, it was Japan leading the retreat that kicked off what became Euro dollar number four. So we see the same thing happen in 2021 in the same tick data. It, it doesn't prove, it doesn't suggest, I mean, it's not completely indicative, it's not 100% guaranteed, but it's something you have to keep in mind, especially given how things have unfolded. As we've said time and time again recently, everything had seemingly gone right during that period, January and February especially. You got vaccines, end of the pandemic, massive stimulus all over the world, QE, if you believe in that sort of thing. I mean, everything was supposed to be going right. An end to the pandemic was in sight, all of these things, and yet, Here's Japan, here's the Caribbean cutting back very deflationary stuff. And maybe that starts to account for why we're seeing all of the contradictory stuff in global markets, despite the fact that, you know, and as you point out, you know, why is this reflation all, is so much less than all these other ones? And it may be because it's already being undercut even as we get into it. 
So we've been looking at it from the foreigner's perspective. They are borrowing from U.S. banks because they have enthusiasm for the rest of the world. Although now, as we've been talking about, it's not as much. That goes against reflation. Now we're going to flip the perspective. We're going to be looking at U.S. banks and they're borrowing from foreigners. And what are they borrowing? They're borrowing short-term treasury securities. That is unsettling, Jeff. Let me pull up this graph and you tell us if if I'm right in thinking that this is somewhat uh, troubling, short-term U.S. Treasury securities. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that perspective because I want to explain that too. What okay. we see, you know, the blue data, as I call it, the blue the blue charts, that's U.S. banks and what they're doing with respect to the, the dollars flowing outside the U.S. And then there's this red data, which mm -hmm. are U.S. bank liabilities to foreigners, which is what U.S. banks are doing, borrowing from foreigners. And so the, what, what really happens in this global monetary system is you have foreign banks borrowing from U.S. banks. You have U.S. banks borrowing from foreign banks. And you also have, which is not included in any of this data, foreign banks borrowing from foreign banks. So you have all this cross-border stuff, plus you have an element of shadow stuff that goes on that we have no idea what's really, what's really taking place in those, those kinds of things, which is why we're trying to piece all of these things together as if we're flying blind, because in many respects we are. And that's why we're trying to merit match all of this tick data, which only shows two parts of the system with market, real-time market data to give us a sense of, okay, are we really seeing what we think we're seeing here with only really half of half of the picture filled in because U.S. banks, what they do borrowing from or lending to foreigners, really maybe not even half of the euro dollar system. Most of it is foreigners borrowing with foreigners. And so we're kind of using the tick data as a proxy for what might be going on in those in that shadow area where we have no data at all we kind of reasonably believe that if u.s banks are borrowing more from foreigners or our foreigners are borrowing more from u.s banks that the, probably the same thing is going on in that hidden foreign to foreign part of it let me pull up the what, we're, what the u.s borrowing from foreigners which yeah, the red is, stuff normally if you told me that the u.s is borrowing more from foreigners good but they're borrowing short-term securities, and yeah, you think, yeah, so, if they're borrowing cash or deposits or some kind of you know monetary quasi money or whatever. But they're they're borrowing short-term treasury securities, which of course we we talk about all the time, treasury bills, and you can actually match up that short-term borrowing and short treasury securities with what are called resales, and resales are the other side of repo. If a repurchase agreement is a short-term collateralized loan, from the borrower's perspective, a resale is a short-term collateralized, collateralized loan from the lender's perspective. And so in one sense, U.S. banks are borrowing collateral from outside the United States, treasury bills. They're borrowing treasury bills from outside the United States. Furthermore, they're not just they're not borrowing treasury bills from foreign central banks where you might think, well, if, 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 uh, if there's a lot of treasury bills outside the U.S., it's probably because central banks have them. No, they're borrowing them from what Tick calls other foreign, which is probably non-banks like money market funds and things like that. So again, you get an idea of this is a global system. U.S. banks are borrowing U.S. government treasury bills from outside the U.S. foreign money market funds and non-banks and things like that. This is a very complicated process. But what gets our attention, obviously, is that you don't see this, this spike in treasury bill borrowing except in the most extreme cases where there's a collateral shortage. And of course, that was last year.
But what gets our attention nowadays, sorry, Emil, just to finish the thought, what gets our attention now is that that level of borrowing treasury bills has, like the post-crisis era, remained relatively high throughout. You know, here we are up to March of 2020, March of 2021 data here. So for an entire year, we've got U.S. banks borrowing treasury bills at an enormously high rate, which doesn't correspond to treasury market issuance. You might say, well, hey, the government sold a lot of treasury bills last year, and that's all it is, foreigners buying them and U.S. banks borrowing, but the treasury to treasury auctions have been cut back, cut scaled back, which is, again, one of the big problems we've, we've been talking about for the last couple of months. My only final thought, and then Jeff, you tell us if you have anything that you want to share with the audience that we didn't cover, is that we see on this graph two half-dome-like cliff faces in the data, and that is the two global financial crises. But in between, we had two massive regional crises. And I think that you, next time you do this chart, I think you can circle the third one down below there. It's not as big, but I think you can see right there in that 2016 period, yep. which was, was a shock. I mean, 2016 in the early part of 2016 was difficult. And I see that it, at least for the short-term treasury securities held by other foreign, we have a little bit of a cliff face rise there. And you also and, have uh, it a couple years later in early 2018. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so, this, I, this, this rise in treasury bills does correspond with so. you know, treasury bill borrowing. And again, that, I think it's an important part, too. This is not... This is not U.S. banks buying treasury. They're borrowing treasury bills. Again, securities lending, collateral, all this, this, this really weird stuff that, go, that actually goes on that you don't hear about in the textbook. Or as the FOMC just admitted last week that, you know, we have the occasion of treasury repo problems spilling over despite abundant reserves. Because here we have, we have concrete evidence, even though it was gathered accidentally by the Treasury Department and they don't know what they're looking at, it tells us that this stuff goes on and it tends to go on in elevated, in ele at elevated levels during periods where we need to be really concerned. Deflationary, tight money, tight collateral, those kinds of things, regardless of the level of bank reserves. Well, let's move to China in the next part of our discussion and see what's happening with both their economic data as well as the monetary data that we can track from the People's Bank of China and see how the monetary and economic data are relating to each other and whether or not China is telling us something about the future of the global economy. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you confused by the financial press? Are the pretty people on Bloomberg speaking in paradox? Are the esteemed pages of The Economist written in contradiction? Then the new Eurodollar Enterprises Dictionary of Economics is for you. Yes, from Abemoronics to Zerp. Zero interesting, reasonable policies confidently leaf through your folio to define Yellenism, Powellution, and Greenspan. Money, a noun, is defined as a blessing that is of no advantage to us, excepting when we part with it. What is a synonym for wealth? Impunity. What is the compound word for making economics erotic? Bernanke Panky, the new Eurodollar Enterprises Dictionary of Economics, new from Eurodollar Enterprises. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. A moment ago, in part two of this episode, I said, let's move to China. Let's move to reviewing China. Maybe we don't all want to move to China right now. That was just 
what Jeff pointed out to me. Jeff, the head of global yes, I... research at Alhambra Partners, happily on the East Coast of the United yeah. States. I not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm moving to China at this juncture would be a good idea for pretty much anyone. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, perhaps, uh, even though things are trending backward. But as I think we're going to see now, as we talk about, as we talked about with Alison Verdurka and, and throughout, you know, the rate of change in economic growth goes down, rate of change in politics tends to go up, and that's never a good thing. So that's nowhere is that more evident than as we just talked about in part two, you know, 19th Party Congress back in 2017, that was, hey, less growth coming, more authoritarianism. According to our YouTube and podcast ratings, nobody is listening to us from China. So people may be wondering, well, then why are you talking about China? It's certainly not for ratings. The reason why is because the system is synchronized. The global economy is synchronized nearly perfectly. But some countries are ahead, some are behind. It seems like China's leading, then the United States, then Europe. So China right now is heading in one direction, and presumably that means the United States and Europe will be following along soon enough, maybe before the end of the year. So how are we going to do this? We're going to look at their big three economic accounts first, and then we're going to look at the central bank uh, balance sheet data and see if we can tie it all together, okay? So... China repeats its same case for no inflation bond yields. That's the title of Jeff's first article posted on May 17th. Jeff, on Sunday, May 16th, the National Bureau of Statistics reported on industrial production, retail sales, and fixed asset investments. Which one do you want to talk about first? I think the big one is, is retail sales. All right. So, you know, the, and that's the one I think that's gets the, gets got, that gets the most coverage, and I think it's the one that's misleading. Because if you look at it year over year, obviously huge base effects because we're comparing April of 2021 with April of 2020. And in April 2020, we all know, was not a very good time in China or any place else. So a year later, the numbers are going to look tremendously positive. They're, they're almost off the chart as they were in March. Retail sales growth, I think, year over year was almost 18%, which puts it back into, it seems like, you know, the 2007-2008 period, which was a tremendously good period for the Chinese economy. And so 17.7% year over year. And we're looking at that graph right now. And the result is very high, very north on this chart. So thank you very much, Jeff. What did you do? You did a two-year comparison so how is this yeah. is this the compounded annual growth rate the, yeah this is the compounded annual growth rate the chinese the nbs provides you with an average growth rate which is you know relatively the same similar either way you do it i think compound is more appropriate but either way you do it when you when you when you take out the base effects of comparing to last year's decline what you see is that china is really really struggling to come back from from last year compared to two years ago two years ago which was you know 2019 wasn't exactly the most robust time in Chinese economic history. In fact, we were heading into a globally synchronized downturn that led to recession in many parts of the world. Yet here we are two years later and Chinese retail sales are up, you know, uh, what was it, 4% four, four uh, compound yes. annual across the two years. So 4% growth puts it among the lowest in history outside of last year's outdoor, outdoor recession. That's not a robust rebound. And the reason I want to focus on retail sales in China is because, again, rebalancing. 
The Chinese have said repeatedly, going all the way back to 2012 and 2013, we don't want to depend upon exports in the global economy anymore because we can't. We realize the global economy is broken, so we're not going to we're not going to really depend on that. We're going to try to transition our our internal economy so that it's more consumer Western spending that kind of uh, uh, orientation. And so retail sales, Chinese consumption, these are incredibly important to the Chinese task of doing that. And if we see the Chinese economy struggling internally as well as externally, that only puts even more pressure on the rest of the global economy downstream, which is already reeling and has been since the end of globally synchronized growth in 2017, because the Chinese have said, we're kind of stuck here, guys. We don't know what we what we can really do. So we're just going to we're going to batten down the hatches. We're going to become more authoritarian because the political risks have gone way up because we can't seem to get the economy moving in the right direction, either externally or internally. What that two year graph shows very nicely is the the last couple, the eras as and the stages of the post Cold War globalization where retail sales were rising parabolically. Then the first great financial crisis we went sideways in China until 2012, if you look at that graph. And then ever since 2012, when the second euro dollar crisis took place in Europe, it's just been a steady ride down in the year, two year growth rate. So people may say, oh, well, it's not fair to compare to 2019. But if you take that wider perspective, you just see since the second euro dollar crisis the chinese retail sale numbers have just been on a steady um what would the un unstoppable like there's nothing has changed for nine years now it's an irresistible Down. euro Irres dollar drag yes right? thank you perfect and you know if, and the funny thing you know, again focusing on chinese retail sales and what we just talked about in the second segment which was japanese banks view of the dollar redistribution business that they're in, they're in and how that relates to china it almost works perfectly, right? Because in the, as you just pointed out, in the early crisis, in the early aftermath of the first global financial crisis, it looked like China was going to come out of it just as it went into it, that there was going to be no damage. And so you can understand why Japanese banks would say, aha, let's get in the dollar, but the Chinese need dollars to grow their internal economy, external, all this other stuff. And it looks like the Chinese are going to be impervious to what's going on in the rest of the world. And then 2012, 2013, it all started to really come off. And that's when Japanese banks said, all right, maybe we need to cut back a little bit here because it's not going the right way. And as you said to me, it was just slowing down, slowing down, slowing down, slowing down perpetually. And that you can understand why that would drive at least Japanese banks, if not the rest of the euro dollar system into, into these various stages of change. You haven't written it recently, but you often do write, if you take a look at your long body of work, that 2011, that crisis, was the final nail in the coffin of the post-Cold War globalization, the post-World War II monetary order. That, that was it. Let's move on to Chinese fixed asset investment. We could do that really fast, industrial production as well. It's sort of the same story, right? One year, year over year, face melting. But on a two-year basis, yeah, the more appropriate two-year basis, you see, it's it's completely different story. And again, what what do we see here? The same as retail sales, the irresistible euro-dollar drag that goes back to twenty. It goes back further in the data, 
all the way to 2011 and 2012. And that was really when I think what really what really put the final nail in the coffin was the Chinese officials realized that this slowdown was permanent and they they changed how they reacted to it. Whereas in the in 2009 and 2010, the Chinese were the best neo-Keynesians on the planet. They did all sorts of textbook stimulus government spending, monetary policies, you know, uh, currency growth, bank reserves, all of the kinds of things you associate with what's going on in the rest of the world nowadays. That's what the Chinese did in the, in the immediate aftermath, aftermath of 2008, 2009. But then after 2011, 2012, when they saw things start to slow down and realized it wasn't going to change, they've completely changed how they respond to this irresistible euro dollar drag, drag too, which again, consistent with the consistent decline, is that we're not going to resist it. This is the way it is. We're going to try to adapt to that kind of environment as best as we possibly can. And that has meant in China, unfortunately for the Chinese, a more authoritarian regime. It's remarkable. The two-year change, how it really, it sort of erases that 2020 shock. And it just shows you that you're just right back on trend. And the trend is slowing growth. Now, I guess the only place where that trend is not slowing growth, is more just stabilized growth, is industrial production. And I always use that as a shorthand for manufacturing and the export sector, which China has done really well. They keep being able to send goods out into the world. At, or the growth hasn't slowed any further. So here you're showing a two-year average, and it just seems like they're at that plateau that they hit in 2015. Yeah, but you know, I think the concerning part about that is that they Chinese have benefited from the the industrial export related, you know, the U.S. goods frenzy for number one, and number two, which may be transitory, and I think is actually going to be transitory. Number two, there's a lot of PPE and, uh, and um, medical equipment involved in that in industrial production, and there's their export numbers as well. So it might be that that even though industrial production has maintained itself. Once we get past all of this transitory stuff related to last year, it may actually come down even further. And then, then it will look like uh, retail sales and fixed asset investment. Yeah, I don't think it's sustainable long term because this is economic activity that and demand that the rest of the world doesn't want to be giving away to China. In a world where the economic pie is growing, Okay, no problem, but it's not. Therefore, I would expect tariffs and trade wars and everything like that to return. So this is something that the Chinese leaders know. They can't count on this. It's nice to have right now, but I don't think it's long term. And they it's have a second. Said, they have reiterated again. That's you know we'll, we'll, we'll just talk about this now. I mean, they have said we're not counting on this. That's what dual circulation is. That's what yeah, no sharp right. turns mean. These are euphemisms for the Chinese basically telling you. We believe, this is from a Communist Party perspective, the Chinese economy is at full potential. Given those charts we just showed you where the two-year changes are incredibly underwhelming, in fact, alarming and concerning, here we have Chinese authorities saying, this is it. We're at full employment. We're at full potential. We're at full whatever. We don't expect there to be an incredibly robust rebound. We expect this is it. We're, we're at... The, the uh, whatever potentials left over from the COVID recession. And they have said it repeatedly. And not only have they said it repeatedly, we, as we're going to talk about here, the People's Bank of China has acted on those words and in, in, in terms of monetary policy 
they're unwinding what little stimulus or what little additions they had had uh, come up with last year. They're already coming off as if they believe or they really don't have much choice, but they have to believe what they're being told by the political leadership that this is it. The economy that you see is the economy that you get. Around the world, central banks are perceived to be stimulating with their hair on fire, doing anything they can, except for one bank, Jeff. Isn't that interesting? The Chinese. And Jeff, I don't know if you heard it right now, but there was a knock at my door. I believe it's the police. (laughs) So just one second, I'm going to tell them that the extradition treaty with Honduras has lapsed. I'll be right back. I'm back. I'm back. I will have uh, to say that I'm used to this by now. When I was with Ed Harrison of Real Vision last week, during our live broadcast, he had a knock at his door, which he said was the sewer department. <laughs> so I, unless that was the sewer department, I think Ed's got you beat here, Emil. No, no, no. It wasn't the sewer department. It was the police. Uh, they were trying to, they've been trying to extradite me to Burma for years, but uh, I don't even think that country exists. So. I I think I've used that joke. Maybe I need to use an extradition treaty with Ceylon. What other countries don't exist anymore, Jeff? East Germany? Yeah, Ceylon's gone. Uh, East Germany, yeah, you could use that one. Indochina? We should put a list together of all countries that don't exist. Fascinating. All right. I don't know how many people we've lost, the audience, how many people we've lost because of my divergences and tangents. They're only here to listen and learn about the people banks of People's Bank of China balance sheet. Which one do you want to talk about first? The two major money outlets, currency and bank reserves, were allowed a noticeable yet only partial detour upward despite the country facing its most severe setback in memory. Which Let's one start do you... with bank reserves. I mean, because that's the one that contrasts the most sharply with Western central banks, including the Bank of Japan which have gone crazy with bank reserves. Well, the Chinese, you would think, I mean, given the rhetoric here in the mainstream media, that they're, that they're doing everything they can to fight this recession too. Yet you look at bank reserves, which are you know one of the primary offshoots or the primary byproducts of monetary policies. Going back to the, the actual out, first outright recession in modern Chinese history, the biggest biggest economic crisis in Chinese history, you'd think there'd be a noticeable, like the, like the uh, base effects of the, you know, retail sales chart, you would, the, 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 the number would go way off the top of the chart. And th- you look at that and you say, that's it? That's what the Chinese did to try to offset their worst economic crisis in, in, in modern history? They barely allowed bank reserves a slight positive year-over-year change and certainly did nothing to erase a multi-year decline that goes back to the top in 2017 and 2018. In fact, the level of bank reserves in April of 2021 was about the same as in April of 2014, seven years before. And the reason we talk about bank reserves and the reason we talk about China and why we're tying this all together is that Euro dollars, the dollar system is the primary motivating factor on the Chinese, the People's Bank of China's asset side. Dollars flow in at least before 2014, 2013, 2014. That meant that the Chinese were actually undertaking something like quantitative easing, except that it was completely organic and natural. And that meant that with so many assets flowing on to the Chinese, to the balance sheet asset side, there was all of this monetary money flowing off of the liability side in the form of bank reserves and currency. 
And ever since then, ever since that break that we keep talking about euro dollar number three, they've been dollar constrained, which has meant the People's Bank of China has been foreign exchange constrained on its asset side. Therefore, its liability side must likewise be constrained unless the People's Bank of China decides they're just going to print RMB, which is something they've judged repeatedly to be the worst of the worst case. So they're avoiding doing that because they think this is the best way to, to try to manage what is essentially a chronic dollar shortage situation and a chronic slowdown in the economy. If I knew nothing, which is not a stretch, and someone asked me to look at this chart and point out where China suffered its biggest economic crisis of the last, how many years has it been? 22 years, 30 years, 22 years? Uh, yeah, 32. I would say it was in 2014. That's where the break was. That I would say that's where the terrible crisis happened. But to your point, we don't see it in this data. What a, we don't see 2020 in this data. We don't see the, yeah, the, the 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 let's rescue. No, no, it's been a break. The break was in 2014. What about currencies, Jeff? I can't talk today. It's fascinating. I'm going to be drinking so much rum next for the next show just to loosen the tongue. Okay, currency. Physical, RMB, yeah, you don't this is want physical to... currency. Yes, yes. And, and there was more of a more of a noticeable increase in currency issued, which makes sense because the Chinese have prioritized real economy projects in their monetary policies, as opposed to more speculative content that goes through the bank banking channel, therefore bank reserves. So, in physical currency, there was a there was a more noticeable loosening of monetary policy going back to February of last year. But even then, it wasn't really all that much. Certainly, nowhere near what it had done in the early parts of the early aftermath of the 2008-2009 crisis, for example. And not even as much as, as currency had been growing back in 2013-2012. So again, it's an underwhelming response to what had been their biggest economic interruption. Certainly, going back to maybe even the Great Leap Forward in the, in the late 50s. And then what that says is that look. The PBOC is acting in the same way as the government has said, that this is the economy we're going to do. And what's important about 2021 is that, as you can see in both currency and bank reserves, they're winding down last year's relatively constrained and limited stimulus. They're, the currency growth in 2021 so far up until April has been going back to the lows uh, that we saw in 2018 and 2019. So. Again, marrying up what the uh, what the uh, Chinese Communist authorities are saying with what the People's Bank of China is actually doing, which is the authorities are saying this is it, this is the economy we got, and here's the People's Bank of China saying, yep, we're we're comfortable with this low level of growth, declining level of growth, even though, as we see in retail sales, the rebalancing or dual circulation, whatever they want to call it, isn't really performing the way that they would hope they had hoped it would. Let's talk about the other side of the balance sheet, Jeff, assets. And this graph is, this is the graph that I really like. It's fascinating how you can see that the, that the currency, the liabilities were supported by foreign exchange until 2014. And I guess they are still in a sense, but it's much more now being supported by all other assets, which I'm guessing are nor in internal national assets that may not be 
to the quality of the U.S. dollar, Swiss franc, Japanese yen, euro? No, those are into those are RMB forms of liquidity. So there's those are like uh, Chinese big banks borrowing from special, like the SLF, for example, or the MLF, these medium medium term lending facilities. So these are RMB quote unquote printing programs, where it creates deposit liabilities for banks, which it becomes an asset for the central bank. So, the so it's, it's essentially yeah. the Chinese saying, we're not getting the foreign assets anymore. This is after 2014, after 2013, actually. We're not getting the foreign assets anymore. How do we, how do we, how do we not have the, the, the People's Bank of China's balance sheet just completely collapse? Hmm. And the only way to do that is to, to essentially print RMB, allow banks to borrow from the central bank in the form of either bank reserves or even physical currency. And that's what they've done. But you can see they've been very careful about doing it. They want to overdo it because they, they believe the worst disease, the worst monetary disease for the Chinese perspective is to have their currency completely collapse, the exchange value collapse, as it had been doing initially uh, 2014, 2015, and so on. So they're, they're very careful about RMB because they don't want to mess with the currency exchange rate, and therefore they're willing to tolerate this constraint in the monetary system simply because they're trying to prioritize what is their least worst option. Yeah, I always looked at it that the people of China would not be as comfortable knowing that more and more of national internal yuan assets are backing their currency as opposed to before knowing that it was backed by all this foreign exchange. That's just how I always thought of it. And that's what I well, felt. It's probably both, right? I mean, it's foreigners think the same way. And really what we're saying is that we're, what I always write is when you look at the People's Bank of China's asset side of its balance sheet, what is, what is it actually telling you? It's telling you how the world system is actually performing. When that side was going up as it did up until 2013, Let's say, okay, things are, seem to be moving. There's dollars flowing around the world. There's economic growth. There's all these kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, bam, it just kind of shuts down and it never comes back. And that's really, when we get to 2017, why that was so underwhelming and why you had to laugh at globally synchronized growth, because you could look right on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet and say, oh my God, this is, this is not happening. It's not happening in any real sense. And it's only going to be temp temporary or transitory. And that's our message for today going forward, you know, moving forward into 2021, same thing. We're looking at the People's Bank of China's balance sheet, looking for at least reflation, if not something better and seeing nothing of the sort and wondering what the hell's going on here. And the Chinese are saying, the Communist Party officials are saying, this is as good as it gets. The People's Bank of China on its liability side are saying, this is as good as it gets. And on the asset side, we're seeing there's no inflation. There's no reflationary money here. In fact, quite the opposite. And so then we put that back with our tick data and all these other various indications. We wonder just how long this sugar high, this inflationary hysteria is going to be able to last. We have all of these indications suggesting there's a lot going, less going right than maybe we think. Beautiful summary, Jeff. Thank you very much. I don't think there's anything left. Wave your hands wildly if there is. No. Okay. No, I think that's, that's really the point here is that it, we look at China not because we want to move there, because we certainly don't, but it tells us a good deal about 
you know, outside the United States? What is what is going on? As we talked about with Alison Federica, you know, China's one place you want to look look toward because it, it can be a very good proxy, not just about economic conditions, but also monetary conditions. As, as counterintuitive as that may sound, the communists tend to have more of a handle on the U.S. dollar situation than anybody else does. Because they can't afford not to. Exactly. Wonderful, Jeff. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Emil. Take care.